So one of the frequent conversations I'm having with pastor friends is, when are people going to come back to church? And who is actually going to come back to church? And, and it's a really interesting thing, because, because we're not really sure what exactly that's going to look like. For a year now, literally a year, which is hard for me to believe, I've been preaching to a camera. One year ago, everything shut down, and we did an online worship service in our house with our daughter Morgan playing guitar, my wife Shannon praying, me preaching, and our son Micah recording the whole thing. And ever since then, I've been talking to a camera. And the hard thing with that is, is we don't really know how things are landing. Like, I might say something funny that I think is hilarious, and I have no idea if anybody's laughing or not. I don't know if people are getting what it is that I'm actually saying. Now, I want to say thank you uh, to you who watch and you who listen, because you all have done an amazing job. Your notes, your emails, your calls, your texts are a great encouragement in knowing that the sermon lands. But, but one of the th reasons, I think, why my friends and I are asking these questions about who is going to return and when they're going to return is that there is a sense that that we like a room that is full. And, and though we have come back to in-person worship, it's still different because people are wearing masks and you can't really judge whether people are, are laughing or getting what it is that you are saying. And so we're looking forward to that day when things do somewhat return to normal. And, and that's the interesting thing. They've been doing research about, well, when are people going to come back? What are they saying? And, and the, the latest research, 56% of the people, this is the end of last year, 56% of the people said, we're going to go back to in-person church when things are like they used to be. When things are like they used to be. Well, that's interesting. Because we're not sure when things are really going to get back to what they used to be. They continue to do this research, and they discovered that by the end of 2020, so December of 2020, 20% of church-going adults, 20% of church-going adults had completely stopped attending. They weren't watching. They weren't going. They just stopped. Earlier research had shown, this is the summer of 2020, that a majority of people hadn't even watched an online service after Easter. It was the last time they took in an online service. And on top of that, about 25% of people were watching another church. Shh, don't tell anyone. But we know that. Perhaps we were doing that. There are others who just simply stopped watching their own church, or maybe their own church wasn't doing anything online, and they started watching other preachers. And so there's a, there's a concern or a thought around, our churches, are, are, are we really seeing a decrease in church attendance, or is it just decentralizing? Because people are watching other worship services. They're watching other preachers. And so the, the consensus is, we don't really know. We don't really know when people are going to come back, or how people are going to come back, or what exactly that's look, going to look like, and whether people are paying attention or not paying attention. And the concern of my friends, my pastoral friends, is this. We don't want people drifting away from Jesus. 
that there there was a rhythm in our lives, and whether we went to church once a month or twice a month, but there was worship, and there was a small group, and there was youth group, and there were connection points that kind of helped to ground us and keep us with Jesus. But so much of that has been lost in the midst of the pandemic. And my pastor friends and I, we don't want people to drift away from the faith. We want people to continue to be anchored to Jesus. And in our text this morning, as we're continuing to put the pieces of the puzzle together as we look at this sermon of Hebrews, the the preacher has a concern around the same thing. He doesn't want the people to drift away. So this is Hebrews chapter 6, and I'm going to start with verses 11 and 12 to kind of set the context for what we're going to be looking at this morning t- today. Verse 11. We want each of you to show the same the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. We want you to be diligent in your faith, the preacher says. We don't want you to become lazy. We want you to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit that which has been promised. So much of the Sermon of Hebrews is saying, you got to keep going. You have to keep persevering. You have to keep living and holding on to Jesus. And they talk about this idea of promise. And it's that promise that we want to talk about today, or at least we want to begin talking about, this promise that is given to Abraham. This is verse 13, Hebrews chapter 6. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So God makes this promise to Abraham. And remember, the the preacher of Hebrews is taking us back to numerous Old Testament texts, numerous Old Testament images to help us to see how God has been with his people from the very beginning. So we read about Abraham's family. We pick up this narrative in, in Genesis chapter 11. And you may recall that, that Abraham, was his father was Terah. God had actually said to Terah, I want you to take you and your family to Canaan, which was the promised land. But they had stopped in Haran. They had settled. They'd gotten lazy. And so God wanted to make sure that this promise happened. So later on, he appears to Abraham and says, I am going to make of you a great nation. I want you to take your wife, Sarah, take Lot and take his family, and I want to take you to a new place. And I'm going to make this great nation of you. And Abraham, who we we see throughout the the scriptures, he really has this, this attitude of, here I am, Lord. It's this faithful obedience. 
And so Abraham picks up, and he and his family move, and they leave behind everything that they had. But here's the dilemma. He's old. His wife is old. They, they don't, they're not able to have a child. And the question in his mind is, how are we ever going to become a great nation? How are we ever going to see descendants of ours from different nations if we have no children? And so finally, Sarah gets pregnant. She has the son, Isaac. And then God does this very strange thing, which you may recall. He says, Abraham, I want you to take him to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And that's weird, and that's strange, and it's awful, and I don't have time to get in the context of all of that today, of what that was, what was behind all of that. But there's a sense that Abraham is faithful. He's obedient. He trusts that somehow God is going to work all of that out. And if he's asking him to sacrifice his son, then some way God will be able to raise him from the dead. And so Abraham gets to the top of the mountaintop, and he begins to prepare to sacrifice him. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord shows up. And we read this in, in Genesis chapter 22. This is verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, I swear by myself. So this is after the angel of the Lord had told Abraham to stop the sacrifice. I swear by myself. And these words should sound familiar. Declares the Lord that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. That word there in verse 16, I swear by myself. It's the same language that the preacher of Hebrews picks up when he's talking about this idea of promise. He's talking about this idea of oath. And Abraham was faithful. He was obedient. And this angel of the Lord, who is none other than Jesus Christ, it has to be, because no one else could speak these kind of words except for God, says, I am going to bless you. I am going to swear by myself. I'm going to take an oath that I will be with you, and I will bless you, and I will bless the nations of the world through you. And as we know, some 2,000 years later, we see Jesus, who then fulfills that promise, who then makes the ultimate sacrifice, who climbs a different mountain in order to offer his life. Because God is a God who keeps his promise, and God is the God who makes an oath in his own name. That's the power in here, and that's, the, that, that's this idea of promises and this idea of oath that, that a lot of this text deals with today, is that God says, there is no greater thing that I can swear by than my own. Because I will be obedient. I will be faithful. I will keep my promise. That's how people made promises back in, in the, the days of Jesus and in and, and Old Testament times. They would swear by the gods and say, may the gods strike me down if I do not keep my word. It's what we used to do when we put our hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God, so that if we were not telling the truth, something would happen to us that would show we had disobeyed. We had been disobedient. We had lied. We had not kept our promise. And God says, I will do what I say I'm going to do. And then we see this in Jesus. The preacher of Hebrews calls Jesus the forerunner. It's the only time this word is actually used in the entirety of the New Testament. And it's a word for a scout 
who goes out in front of the troop to make sure that everything's okay. A scout who goes out to prepare the way. A scout who, who, who pushes away everything that might be a problem and makes things ready. And this is who Jesus is for us. And this is what the, the, the preacher of Hebrews wants to make sure his congregation knows, is that Jesus has gone before us. That's why we can trust in him. He is the one who is obedient. He is the one who keeps his promise. He enters the holy place. He becomes, as we talked about last week, our great high priest, making the sacrifice once and for all. He becomes our anchor. So we read about this. I want to take us back to to Exodus uh, to remind ourselves of, of the tabernacle and the importance of the Holy of Holies and then what happens behind the Holy of Holies. So this is Exodus chapter 26, verse 30. Moses is given these instructions. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown to you on the mountain. And then this is what we read. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, with cherubim woven woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold and stranding on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps, and place the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant Law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite on the south side. So this is now describing the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, where the high priests went in once a year to make atonement for the nation of Israel, to atone for their own sins and then also to atone for the sins of Israel, to offer the sacrifice. And we read that Jesus has now gone in to the Holy of Holies, that he is our anchor, that he has achieved what nobody else could possibly achieve, that the anchor holds now within the veil. We sing that hymn, that song, that that's where that image comes from, that he serves as our anchor within the veil. He has gone where no other, no other high priest was able to go without atoning for their own sins. But Jesus is perfect, and therefore he becomes our anchor. And we get to see the exaltation of Christ, and we get to know that, that Jesus' promise is firm and it's secure, that he has kept the oath, that he is with us. So I want for us to think for a moment about the image of the anchor. I've got a picture here, and maybe to help remind us of that. You live in San Diego, or you know the San Diego area, you know this is the, the sailing ship, the Star of India. But when the author of Hebrews describes Jesus as our anchor of hope, that's where this sailing ship is really important to see and to understand. Because back in the days when this letter was written, you would have these large sailing vessels that would be looking for safe harbor. But oftentimes, the way you got into that safe harbor was in a narrow, precarious way. There were rocks and there were reefs. And so what these large sailing ships would do is they would lower their anchor into a smaller boat. 
and that smaller boat would row its way into the safe harbor and then drop the anchor. And then those mighty sailing ships would lower their sails and they would be pulled in to safe harbor. And this is what Jesus Christ does for us. He longs to bring us in to safe harbor. He longs for us to anchor our lives in him. And the question is, will we let our sails down? Will we trust in him? Because we need him as our hope. Because I think that we are still living. I mean, we're seeing images and, and glimpses of some hope coming out of this pandemic. But we're still living in a world and a society where there is so much racial tension, so much hatred of one another, so much despising of the other. And, and we saw that in Atlanta, and we've seen that in so many different ways. And, and it is just painful to watch. And, and we as followers of Jesus have to understand that if we are placing our hope in the great systems of this world or in our politics or in our policies, and, and I don't care if you are Republican, Democrat, progressive, conservative, wherever you fall in that, if that's where we're placing our hope, we are always going to be disappointed. We need a far greater hope. We need to lament the loss, and then we need to remember the hope. We see this, and I promise we're not going to go back into lamentations for a long time, but I want to look at this because This is what Jeremiah, he's looking at his world, and he's beginning to lose hope. This is uh, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. And it's easy to get to this place where we're downcast. If you watch too much news, if you're watching too much on social media too much, you're going to get to this place, I promise you. And you're going to get to this place where you feel filled with gloom and despair. And even if you're not watching a lot of stuff, you're going to find yourself in moments of the reality of gloom and despair. And what I want to say is it's legitimate to speak that. To say, these things are not right. I remember well, as as Jeremiah writes this, the bitterness and the gall. But he doesn't end there. But he begins, and he begins, to preach himself out of the gloom. And that's what we also have to be able to do ourselves. We have to preach ourselves out of the gloom. We keep reading on as as we do this. Jeremiah does this in verse 21. It says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, I recall, I remember, I keep holding on. And for those of us today who feel as though we have lost hope, 
for those of us who feel like we have glimpsed hope and then it's kind of come, come crushing down again on us and we don't have quite as much hope, I want to remind you that our help is found, our hope is found in Jesus Christ. And what I want to ask you is this. What is your life anchored to? The preacher of Hebrews says, God is our refuge. God is our safe place. God is this this one who will offer us protection. He brings us in out of the storm and into a place of safety. Where is your life anchored? What are you holding on to? I pray and hope that you will trust Jesus as your anchor. And that as he reaches out to you, as he reminds you of all that he has done for him, for you, you will reach out to him and let him draw you in to safety. That you will rest in him and find your hope and your peace. Pray with me, please. God, thanks for this day. Thank you that in Jesus Christ we meet our anchor. Thank you, God, that you are a God who keeps your promise. Man, God. You kept your promise to Abraham, even when he didn't glimpse, even when he didn't see the fulfillment of it all, he still was faithful. Lord, help us to be faithful like Abraham. Lord, help us to yield our lives to you. Help us to trust our lives to you. Thank you, God, that you are the one who has loved us and you are the one who has redeemed us. May we find our hope in you. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.